Imagination, Circumcision, and Confederate Monuments. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast by me, Mike McCarg, the guy they call Science Mike, even though I'm not a scientist. How weird is that? I'm using my best radio voice for the intro, and I've got some really fun questions this week. They span neuroscience and history, which I'm terrible at, and uh, implicit biases. So, what do you say? Let's get it started. Let's start with the events, uh, because there's some really exciting ones. This week, September the 7th, Thursday, in Memphis, Tennessee, I'm doing Theology Live with Broderick Greer. I'm so excited slash nervous that I can't stand it. If you're in Memphis, I'd love to see you there. Tickets are running out for the Liturgist Gathering in Los Angeles, September 15th and 16th. So if you've been thinking about it, go ahead and pull the trigger before there's no tickets to be had. Uh, we'll also do the Liturgist Gathering in Boston, October 6th and 7th. Still plenty of tickets available for that. We'll do the Liturgist Gathering in Seattle, Washington, October 27th and 28th. To learn more, go to theliturgistgathering.com. And of course, I'd love to see you over in the United Kingdom on October 11th. I'll be in London. Tickets still available. October 13th, I'll be in Birmingham. Tickets are still available. And October 17th, I'll be in Edinburgh. I've gotten your uh, pronunciation corrections online. Thank you for that. So I'll be in Edinburgh for an Ask Science Mike Live. Love to see you at one of those events. Or if you'd rather see me in Dublin, Ireland, come to the Rubicon Conference October 21st. Learn more about that at wearerubicon.com. So, want tickets? Ask Science Mike. Com, click on events. You can get tickets to any of these events. Theology Live is a free event with no ticket required. And uh, then we've got more dates on the calendar as well in November and throughout the winter. So you can learn all about that at AskScienceMike.com. Just click on the events tab. And then don't forget about Ask Bible Pete. If you'd like to ask the Bible scholar Pete ends a question and have it answered on this program, use hashtag AskBiblePete on Twitter or in an email or voicemail question on AskScienceMike.com. Really excited about that. We've gotten a lot of really great email questions. We don't have that many voicemail questions yet, so if you don't mind having your voice heard on a podcast, go ahead and leave a voicemail question. Statistically, you have a much better chance of your question being selected if you use voicemail than if you use email, especially for the Ask Bible Pete episode. So there's the announcements. Let's do a question. Hey, Science Mike. I'm uh, fascinated with the imagination and how humans are capable of imagining things. I was wanting to know uh, if you could share with us a little bit about the neuroscience behind the imagination. Also, is this something that's unique only to human beings and not other species? 
or what are we aware of as far as that goes? And then um, lastly, is this something that we can consider to be a part of the way that we reflect the image of God? And if so, how does that look in the way that God imagines? Thank you. What a terribly interesting question. Um, Got to be one of the ones I've had the most fun researching in recent memory. Uh, not that I spent the most time on, but certainly that I had the most fun with. So, you know, there's been years of neuroscience research trying to find where imagination happens in the brain. And what we're finding over and over, there's very seldom one part of the brain that's responsible for one thing. Almost everything the brain does is distributed in networks that incorporate different areas of the brain. And the imagination is no exception. It is a network that spans the anatomy of the human brain. And when you imagine something, any parts of the brain that are generally responsible for processing sensory information become active when you imagine, say, sights or sounds or smell or tactile sensation, otherwise known as touch. Uh, When you imagine seeing something, the visual cortex in the back of your head activates as if you've actually seen something. Uh, That's really cool. And it also kind of what you would expect. So, But another thing we've also seen in some studies that is a little interesting is that the normal direction of signal flow, say when you see something, is you have activity in the visual cortex in the occipital lobe that then moves up toward the parietal lobe, kind of at the top of your head. And uh, what's interesting there is the parietal lobe, among other things, uh, it plays a role in integrating sensory information in different senses. Uh, And so when you're imagining, as opposed to your uh, visual cortex feeding your parietal lobe, the other happens. Signals originate in the parietal lobe and then move toward the visual cortex. So you almost play out sensory information in reverse. And this, the fact that this is all spread out across your brain, that it's a distributed network, actually allows us to imagine things that we've never seen or experienced by combining different networks of neurons in something that researchers call a mental workspace. So the last time you saw a baseball, a set of neurons fired together at the same time that tracked different attributes of a baseball, its color, its size, its texture, its shape, uh, all those things. And that became the neurological roots of your idea of a baseball. And the more you see baseballs, kind of the more developed this network becomes. And uh, you have different networks for different objects. And the same neuron may be a part of different networks. It may respond to a certain hue that your visual cortex picks up, right? And this is also how you identify objects in memory as we understand it. Uh, But what's amazing about this, because you can mix different neural networks together in this mental workspace, you can actually fabricate things in your imagination you've never actually seen. So I know you've never seen an antelope reading a newspaper while wearing a purple tuxedo, but you can picture it very easily. Your mental workspace allows that kind of really advanced image manipulation. And this kind of thinking, where we modify and mix images and sensory fragments, is essential to human problem solving. 
And so while I don't believe that humans are the only animals that possess an imagination, we might be unique in the degree to which we can combine intent or willpower with our visualization capacity. And that results in something like Albert Einstein, who says that he would actually picture visual images in his mind and transform them and manipulate them to create his theories. The imagination plays an essential role in not just the arts, but all kinds of human problem-solving and cognitive endeavors. Now, in terms of what does that have to do with God's imagination, I have no idea. I'm a mystic. <laughs> Uh, That's not a question I could answer uh, with any degree of satisfaction for myself. Uh, I will say that a a particularly compelling understanding of Genesis that I've heard is that our creative capacity is an echo of God's. This is the image of God, the ability to create with intent. How well does that combine with my, you know, uh, God you know, that incorporates all of time and space and singularity physics, not terribly well, uh, but as a mystic, it is a very useful metaphor. Next question came in via email. Here it goes. Why does history repeat itself? There are a lot of arguments about the taking down of Confederate statues right now. Where's the line between remembering our history and memorializing? Can we prevent the repeat of horrific wars such as World War II or the Civil War simply by remembering our history, or is there a generational element that we forget the tragedy behind it once it stops being personal and the first-hand accounts of survivors die out? Thank you for your thoughts. Well, the second half of your question is, is, is particularly compelling. There is research that supports the idea that horrific battles and war can eliminate uh, conflict of that kind as long as it's in living memory, as long as there are people alive to tell these cautionary tales. Uh, But historically speaking, our species doesn't appear to be particularly compelled by historical account. Even when we know history, we tend to repeat it. And as someone who reads probably too much cognitive neuroscience... I've learned that it's really difficult to predict any one individual's behavior moment by moment. That's almost impossible. But predicting a group's behavior over a period of time, basically the larger the group and the larger the window of time, the closer to certainty we can get with projecting how humans will respond to given conditions. And unfortunately, uh, what we understand about humans is we're not only one of the most social primates, we're also one of the most likely to go to war. We're actually more, we have a greater propensity to create war than chimpanzees, the second most war-waging ape. Uh, Not particularly encouraging, is it? Um, So what do we do about that? Well, I don't know. But I'm not sure that the Confederate monument thing makes for a particularly compelling case. Uh, I'd, I'd think about it this way. Imagine if in Germany there were monuments to the Nazis, not memorials to the victims of the Nazis, but monuments to the Nazis themselves, glorifying the role, for example, they played in expanding German infrastructure. 
or the way that their tenacity illustrated the German spirit. We can't imagine such a thing. The the human cost of Nazi ideology is inhuman, but I would argue that's also true of the Confederacy. I mean, can you imagine a Hitler statue in Israel, and how different is that from a Robert E. Lee statue next to a predominantly black elementary school? The glorification of a failed rebellion is strange even by historical standards. The South, thankfully, lost the Civil War, and so began a slow process of a movement toward equality for people of color in America, which has still not been achieved. But if you look at the history of Civil War monuments, you'll find something curious. Most of the monuments were built either in the early 20th century as Jim Crow laws hit the books, fighting the uh, emancipation of free black people in the South, or during the Civil Rights Movement. Now, what do you think the motivation would be for a society to build monuments of people who fought against the legalization of slavery at exactly the moment they were fighting against civil rights for black Americans. I don't think Confederate war monuments do a very good job of conveying an accurate picture of American history. Instead, they portray a false narrative of a noble South, primarily concerned with states' rights, as opposed to brutal, wealthy landowners, landowners sending their poor brethren to fight and die for their right to extract wealth from slave labor. I think the best way to honor history, and indeed to avoid repeating it, is to remove every single Confederate monument from public spaces around the United States of America, and instead teach our children of the sacrifice people have made moving towards universal human equality. To point out the flaws and failures of our forefathers and the messy struggle for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hey Mike, I had a question I was hoping you could unpack. It seems that out of my friends and acquaintances that tend to believe or share false news stories, majority of them are conservative Christians. And I know you've shared the statistics that conservatives are more likely to believe and share false news. Um, but I didn't know if there being Christian could also play into that. Now, admittedly, I have a lot of friends that are conservatives and out of those, a majority of them probably are Christian. So this may be my personal observation, but if it's more common I was wondering what the driving factor may be. Um, is our being Christian, does that make us more susceptible to believing um, falsehood and rumors? Or does believing falsehood and rumors make us more likely to be Christian? Um, whatever light you could shed on that would be great. I appreciate it, and I thank you and keep doing what you're doing. 
I've found that any linkage between religiosity, even Christian religiosity, and uh, accepting unsupported claims is overplayed. Uh, for example, when you look at the uh, rate at which people deny the theory of evolution's validity or climate change, sure, you see a high correlation with religious people, but only when that's combined with a conservative political ideology. When you remove that as a factor, the differences between that and the general population level out or even invert. Um, and so what we're seeing is there's been an, an intense uh, intermingling of Christian theology and conservative political ideology in the United States since the rise of the moral majority. And that's a much better predictor for things like fake news or denying climate change than whether someone you know, believes in God, prayer, angels, or indeed identifies as a Christian at all. There are progressive Christians. In fact, they are uh, growing in number um, every day, although not as fast as people are dropping the label Christian altogether, <laughs> which makes some sense in reaction to uh, what we're about to talk about. Now, when we unpack this this more fundamental cognitive label of conservative versus Christian, we do find uh, some fascinating trends in the data, though they are not universal. Some studies show that conservative people are more attuned or aware of potential threats in their environment than people who identify as liberal. They're, they're more concerned about danger in the world. And because of this, they're more likely to accept false positives about potential dangers as a result. So if a, if a uh, media outlet wants to drive you know, uh, some desired action, anything from clicks to register to vote to whatever it may be, if they attach this to a fear-based narrative about threats or impending disasters, uh, then that is something conservatives are more likely to accept. And so one thing, it's not just fake news in general. It's fake news that involves risk or threat that conservatives are more likely than liberals to respond to. Other studies have shown that conservatives are less likely to engage in cognitive reflection, meaning when they are exposed to information that subverts their understanding of the world, they are less likely to continue to think about it and to devote their analytical capacity to dealing with it. This does not mean they are less capable of cognitive reflection or that they are less intelligent than liberal people, simply that they are more reluctant or more reticent to engage in cognitive reflection. Obviously, cognitive reflection plays a role in checking uh, us sharing information that goes along with a narrative that supports our worldview. For example, on the conservative side, you know, that Obama was um, doing illegal surveillance on Donald Trump. So that's not a threat, really, but it does kind of validate a worldview. Now, to be clear, several studies actually show no difference at all in conservatives and liberals and how often they believe and share fake news. Um, and 
Furthermore, we're finding that fake news on the left is growing rapidly now in the age of Donald Trump. Some of the hysteria around Russia, to me, resembles the hysteria around Obama's birth certificate, right? It's true. Barack Obama's origins um, involve different nationalities. That's a, that's a true statement. That doesn't mean he wasn't born in the United States. You see what I'm saying? So there's a, you take a legitimate idea and expand it into nonsense. It, it is entirely possible that Russia played a significant role in Donald Trump's election. Uh, it's, it's possible that there was even some coordination between members of the Trump campaign and Russia. But to blow this into like Bernie Sanders as a Russian spy, uh, the, there's some really just crazy overblown claims on the left that are extremely popular. Hundreds of thousands of people share these ideas. And so one re- thing that might explain that studies both show uh, that conservatives are more likely to fake news and other studies showing no difference is simply that now there's more fake news that's finding the cognitive triggers that will encourage liberals to not engage in cognitive reflection or to process risk and threat differently. Many liberals feel frightened and under siege in the Trump era And so maybe liberals are beginning to become just as threat-focused as conservatives are. Another thing I believe is that we are becoming addicted to moral outrage in our media. It feels good, and this can be shown in brain scans, to have moral outrage, to be disgusted by something that is so obviously wrong and prevalent that also shows the way in which you may be morally superior to other people. That's emotionally gratifying. It stimulates the pleasure centers of the brain at the very same time it stimulates the brain's amygdala. So you're feeling fear or anger plus pleasure at the same time. And friends, I think that's a toxic mix. I think that's driving our media narrative. Now, don't get me wrong. I actually think it's important and essential that the media holds the Trump administration accountable. Heck, I wish they would have held the Obama administration more accountable than they did. I think there are genuinely substantive issues that we can disagree about in this country and some issues that aren't issues at all, but people's right to human flourishing, their constitutionally protected rights to live their lives free of the interference of the beliefs of other people. But I think many of us spend more time in a state of neurological arousal and moral outrage than we do in real substantive discussion of the issues we face or methods we can take to address them. I am far more fascinated in people discussing possible solutions, even be they ill-conceived, that I am simply continuing to be demonizing the other. Fake news, I think, it may turn out to be near nuclear weapons and the internet and the impact on human history as future historians look at our age. 
I think it's essential that we develop critical thinking skills and learn to reflect on and check our own invisible cognitive biases uh, or else we won't just repeat history. We'll amplify it. And it won't just be a conservative thing or a liberal thing. We'll be truly united in our mutual moral outrage. Our last question came in via email and it reads, My husband and I are feeling pretty conflicted about getting our unborn son circumcised. From what we have learned about the issue anatomically, we feel it is not medically necessary and even potentially harmful to a person's overall sexual health. However, many people that we respect have asserted that circumcision is biblical. What are your thoughts about upholding biblical traditions that seem to be more a matter of culture? Okay, you can imagine where I'll go with this one pretty easily. Uh, First of all, um, no, there's no medical necessity to circumcision. When... um, Meta-studies or studies of studies have been done about circumcision. Some of the narratives about the harm to sexual health appear to be overblown, but those researchers also admit that we don't have much high-quality data uh, and that much more research is needed. So just because you get your child circumcised, it's not like a you know death sentence to sexual gratification or sexual health. Uh, that said, I think circumcision is probably immoral. <laughs> like children don't consent to it, you know, and it's not like a medically necessary procedure. It is our own culturalization, and yeah, the biblical thing, the the mores around circumcision. I feel like Paul covered this uh, pretty exhaustively um, in the New Testament that uh, Gentiles weren't meant to be under the entirety of. Uh, the old covenant. So even if you're like a pretty biblical literalist, I feel like Paul's is a, is a really easy way out of uh, mandatory circumcision for babies. Um, now I I did also read. Um, it's obviously a very biased source because it's uh, doctorsopposingcircumcision.org, but I did look up the bio of some of their board members. They are legitimate doctors who uh, expressed their concern about circumcision and its health impacts. Uh, I I think it's better safe than sorry. Just avoid circumcision. And frankly, like, why does everyone need to know what you're doing with your child's genitals? It's, It's none of their business. Whether you circumcise your child or not, they should have no idea if you're circumcising your children or not. I understand you're probably asking people, um, because it's a human thing. We're social animals. We like to kind of poll uh, people we care about and find their opinions. It's a huge factor in our decision-making capacity. But at the end of the day, it's nobody's business uh, other than your child, really. So, yeah, I think I think your impulse, your impulse here is good. Um, and, a, and an increasing number, although still small number of parents, are opting to not circumcise their male children. And I want to be, you know, complete in my answer, so I want to go ahead and offer some of the pushback I might get from the medical community <laughs> regarding uh, my stance on circumcision. Uh, some doctors, uh, first of all, the circumcision rate 
has fallen from about 83% in the 60s to about 77% in 2010. That is primarily driven um, by changes in racial demographics. Uh, White people are still circumcised the overwhelming majority of their children. Uh, But some doctors say that uh, circumcision is not just um, cultural but medically necessary, that it should be as common as vaccination, because about half of children develop some health-related effect from a circumcision like a UTI. Uh, And then some studies have shown um, circumcision reduces transmission risk for HIV and general herpes. So there are potential health benefits to circumcision, according to many studies. Uh, And I'll include a link to all that in the notes on AskScienceMike.com. So where does that leave you? leaves you in a a pickle. (laughs) It really does. Uh, Because, you know, I can offer you some research that shows that circumcision is not, not bad, some that shows it's beneficial, some that shows that it's harmful, all from qualified medical professionals. So armed with all that data, make the decision that squares best uh, with your understanding of the data and your moral, ethical rubric for the world. But remember, at the end of the day, it's not my business. It's not your friend's business. uh, It's your child's penis and only your child's penis. Ask Science Mike is made possible by people who financially support this program. If you enjoy this question and answer, completely open-ended discussion, uh, helping people understand and avoid shame and doubt about questions related to science and faith and just life in general, social justice and sexuality, I could use a buck a month or five bucks a month. Just go to AskScienceMike.com, click on the Patreon logo, and you can join the folks on Patreon who make this program possible. Of course, the show also needs questions in order to exist. So you can go to AskScienceMike.com. You can send me an email or a voicemail question on AskScienceMike.com. I'll get your question in consideration for the show. I'd like to thank Andrew Galucky for pre-production, Greg Nordine for producing and sound designing Ask Science Mike, and my boy Jeff Botterford for the Ask Science Mike theme song. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week. Uh